Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. As the child of a single mother, theologian Candace Marie Benbow realized early on that the Christian church isn't always a welcoming place. These days, her work focuses on reimagining how faith can be a tool of liberation and transformation for women and girls. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week on the show, one woman's journey of connecting with God in and beyond the confines of organized religion. And now she's on a mission to make faith more accessible to everyone. Candace Marie Benbow is a theologian, essayist, columnist, and educator. She's author of the new memoir, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. Candace, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to talk to you because there is a lot to talk about, even with the title of this book and and the the weight of that title. But I want to get into it from a different angle because this book is equal parts memoir, cultural reflection, and also in some ways a guide and encouragement for people who have struggled with these same things but lack the the words to really put it into context. So share with our listeners before we go forward, what is red lip theology and how did you develop that concept? Yeah, thank you for that. The red lip theology for me is a a way of life and faith as a black millennial woman. It's the lens through which I see God, I see my I see myself, I see the world being raised steeped in Black church culture and hip hop culture. I am a true Black millennial. (laughs) And in so many ways, both have brought an extreme awareness to me. And so I, I would say that I began, and I talk about this in the book a bit, um, these questions began circulating and percolating for me years ago, like decades ago, even as a kid, you know, not understanding how certain things worked in the church and how um, certain moves are made and how certain people, particularly my mother and single mothers are maligned and just thinking that that's not right. And so through a series of, of one education, um, going to, to graduate school and then ultimately going to seminary, but then through also my self-discovery and talking to other sisters, it became evident that I needed to write in this way and, and begin to have these kinds of conversations. Even that framing of being a young woman of faith who is growing up within hip-hop culture and also church culture, because often those two cultures and traditions are seen at odds with one another. And so the question then becomes, where do I fit? If I'm living between these two worlds, never fully within either one, where do I fit? So if you've been wrestling with these questions since, you know, as a young child, and and then as you said, you went to divinity school, was there a moment in divinity school where you said, this is the belief system 
that fits for my understanding and how I define for myself who I am in these spaces? Yeah, it actually came (laughs) very haphazardly. I talk about in the book, a white male classmate coming up to me and asking me, was I a Black liberation theologian, a Black theologian, or was I a regular theologian? As if to say that doing work and thinking theologically from my context is somehow niche and that everybody else is doing real work and real theology. And I quipped at him, I'm a red lip theologian. And um, he was like, who, who created that? Thinking like we had read it and he had missed it. And I said, I did just now. So it was this very sarcastic remark, but as soon as I said it, it really resonated with me because it was also the journey that I was on at the time. Like I had come from a breakup and through a breakup had made a promise to my best friend that I would, I would work to piece myself together. And so I was engaging in like beauty participation, beauty industry participation at the same time that I was in, I was at Duke Divinity School. And so I, the two were married for me in a in a very interesting way. So when I said I'm a red lip theologian, it became okay. Now what is it, and how do I kind of concretize and theorize the conversations that I've been having with friends and that I've been having with my professors to think very uh, strategically and congruently about life and and what it means and it has been it's been a joy it's been a joy and a journey because I think even after the book came out so many women and and others have told me what relic theology means to them and what it is for them and it's been like wow like you know and I think that that's the beauty of when we write and when we speak our words live beyond us and that's the beauty of it right like you know you put this thing into the world you put this thought into the world and it and it takes on its own life and people are able to do with it what they what they desire and what they hope and it's and it's just been really really beautiful it's just been really beautiful I want to talk about the journey that you mentioned because you are a graduate of Duke Divinity School, right? You grew up in the South. You and I both grew up in the South and grew up what we call very churchy, growing up in that institution of the Black church, which is different in many ways, and also has this inherent challenge, Candace, of realizing that you're in this space, but sometimes feeling like you're pushed out of that space. And you have talked very candidly throughout your work about that experience of being born to a a single mother, a child of a single mother whose faith was very important to her and a part of your experience. And then having the church sort of ostracize her for being a single mother. And that piece of your book resonated with me because I remember in my home church, if a woman got pregnant out of wedlock, she had to go before the church and apologize. Men never had to do that. So with that kind of experience at the beginning of your journey, how does that connect to this red lip theology and your sense of faith as a journey and sort of always a negotiation about what that means for you? Yeah, um, I had to walk with God and with faith 
in a way to make it my own. Like I believe, I say all the time, like people say all the time, the personal is political, right? And I say that the personal is theological and the personal is political. Like who you are, um, what you believe is who you are, right? And that, and that is how you vote and that is how you think. And there was always a part of me that knew that how these men <laughs> um, who were preachers, how they talked about and maligned women was inconsistent, one, with the woman that I was living with, my mother, and how she raised me. And then it felt very inconsistent with this kind of love that that I read in scripture and this and this this God that one I was coming in contact with in scripture. And so I found myself really trying to push to think through like what what all of that meant. And so it continues to be a journey because I think if we don't constantly navigate the world of faith, if we don't constantly push to make it as personal to us. I don't believe that faith and theology are supposed to be these like rigid, like black and white, like like it, it, it can't be because life is not black and white. It is very nuanced. If we can go into court systems and have mitigating factors, right? How much more important are those mitigating factors to our personal lives and to, to recognizing that, hey, I am human and I didn't get it right this time, but that is not the totality of who I am. My mama used to say that none of us are all good or all bad and that we are not the last thing that we've done and we're not the worst thing that we've done. And so I've had to, the journey has been accepting that for me and also particularly helping black women to accept that for themselves because we live in a world that is extremely harsh and critical to sisters. That like, if you make one mistake, you are so easily thrown away. You are beyond redemption. And too often we embody that and we think that this mistake is unto death, right? That like, that you can't, you can't get over it. And so what I have hoped that my work has done is introducing a much more kinder, gentler understanding of who women, of who we can be in faith and through faith so that our, our journeys are not marred with with such extreme levels of disappointment and shame and guilt. Like, I think that those are the things that we carry that we shouldn't have to carry. There is a powerful sense of agency of hearing you talk about, I will define myself for myself. I will chart my journey, especially in a space, Candace, where the people who are asked to carry shame and stigma aren't the people who should be carrying the shame and the stigma. They shouldn't carry that. The people who commit the harm should. And what you've also been very open about is deciding that you want to be a mother. And if being a single mother, um, you know, doing so via IVF is the way that you will fulfill 
that plan for your life, you're going to step into it without regard for how others and institutions try to define that journey. How do you see those things? Sort of this this decision that I'm going to be a mother in the way that I choose, along with that idea of grace and mercy that is so hard for Black women in this country. Yeah, so one of the things that I have held on to is this particular scripture where it's this moment in scripture where Jesus says, you know, if it is my father's good pleasure to give you the keys to the kingdom, to give you the kingdom. And it has been this idea, right, that like our lives are meant to be happy. They're meant to be full. They're meant to be whole. They're meant to be joyous. And when I think about what happiness and joy and fulfillment look like for me, it includes motherhood. And I have, I won walking away from this notion or this belief that single motherhood is sinful uh, was the crux of, of my, you know, I believe it. Like it's the crux of who I am as a person. So walking away from that and knowing that that's not true gave me the space to enter into to say, I want to be a mom. And I would love to be partnered, right? Like I would, I would love for somebody else to get up at two o'clock in the morning and feed their baby and, and change a diaper. And if that does not happen in that way for me, I don't want to negate this desire that I have to be a mother. And I think that one of the things that that this journey has been teaching me, and it's so funny because I just I just had a an appointment with my um, OBGYN last week and we were talking and she was like, so, you know, like we were doing tests and all the other things. And she's like, how do you feel? And I told her, I said, I'm learning so much about myself and what it means to prioritize joy and what's important for me and what I value. And I think when I think about it in the broader scape of my childhood and the broader scape of being raised in the church, and I think, you know, we can attest to this, so many of us can attest to this, as women, we're not given that space, right? We are told that our desires and our dreams and our hopes come at the expense of other, they come after everyone else, right? That we're supposed to give to everybody else. And then if we have something left over, we need to find somebody else to give it to, you know? And so prioritizing me in this way and and really living into this is my desire and this is my hope for myself and and making moves towards it has been has been something of a reclamation of what it means to say I deserve joy and happiness and fulfillment too and and to and to honor that and i think we're in a very interesting time for women and for other marginalized communities is that what does it mean to prioritize yourself in this world where you know for all of us last week was heavy when the school shooting at rob elementary happened there was this moment where, and I, I'm not a mom yet, but I'm human and I care about people. And I have been, every moment that I think about it, it stops me 
and I am, I'm weepy and I'm broken because there's a moment like that when you are confronted with the real evil that is in this world. And the fact that we cannot, despite all of the ways that we want to, we can't even protect our babies from the evil, right? You know, there was there was this, this idea and belief that in childhood you protect you protect them as much as you can. And then at 18, when they launch out into the world, you pray that you've done enough that will keep them safe. You don't eat parents don't even have that kind of assurance anymore, right? And so last week I was just like, this is this is the world that we live in. And what do I do? And my my OBGYN said to me, all you do is you keep putting more light. That's it. And she said, and, and if that looks like you continuing to, to follow this journey, if it looks like you encouraging other women to do the same, if it looks like the ways that you write, the ways that you, you love and you care for the children and the people that are in your life, you just put more light in the world. And I think that ultimately this journey writing all of the ways that I have had to, you know, reclaim myself and my spirit is about like, we got to put more light in the world. And before we can put light in the world, we got to recognize and we discover the light in ourselves. And it continues to be a journey, but I think it's one that all of us in some way, shape or form are equipped for. And I want to thank you for naming that, for naming that heaviness. Because I think a lot of people assume that if you are a person of faith, that if you are a person who has a religious tradition or practice, that you navigate these things differently, right? We, we always hear that response like, oh, thoughts and prayers. But what are thoughts right. and prayers? If, you know, faith without works is dead. What thoughts, prayers, and action? And to name as a person of faith who has, who has said, I still struggle with understanding how in a world with so much light and so much goodness, there can be so much evil and so much harm. And thinking about your role in bringing light, right? That all sounds wonderful. But Candace, let's be honest here. You have encountered a lot of vitriol and a lot of pushback for saying that simple thing that Black women and girls deserve joy like everyone else. And you have stood up to some heavy hitters in the religious community to say, don't use your pulpit to bully Black women and girls and then rely on them when you need something. How do you manage that? How do you manage this idea that you are a vessel to bring light through your work and through your words and you also become a target? How do you navigate that? It's hard. <laughs> I think I'm I'm figuring out now a way that um, I'm, I'm much more insulated with friends who I can process a lot of stuff with and I'm learning how not to respond. But ultimately, it's been hard because the truth is, it's difficult to be attacked when you are fighting for rights for people to be loved, to be loved by a God that 
everybody claims is love. Like that is mind boggling at times, right? And it is even much more difficult to experience the vitriol from people who get in pulpits and preach the gospel. And so there's this moment where you're like, okay, so what are we really doing here, right? Like what is what it, what is going on? And I think what has helped and what continues to help is that I am, I know that the work and the efforts reach the people that they're supposed to. The women who reach out to me who are like, I read you and it helped me. The pastors who are like, I read your book and I had to sit with it. And then I made, I had a pastor say, he made a required reading for all of his associate, all of his associate ministers and his deacons. And that was phenomenal to me. You know, those are the moments that matter. Um, And I think that, that what I have had to acknowledge is that I'm no different from anyone else who stands up and says, you know, that these things are not right and we have to do better. And you would wish and want and desire for us to live in a world where justice and equity reign, but we got to push to make that world, you know, we got to, we got to push as scripture says, you know, to make it on earth as it is in heaven. Right. And so I, I recognize that that's part of the work that I do and it can feel isolating and lonely, but I always know that in those moments, I'm also given the awareness to know that the naysayers and and as loud as they are, are not louder than the people who are saying like, this is necessary and this matters. That was Candace Marie Benbow, theologian and author of the new memoir, Red Lip Theology. After the break, Candace talks about how gendering God reinforces misogyny in the church and what she's learned about forgiving herself. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. All this hour, we're speaking with theologian Candice Marie Benbow about how her work brings together beauty, faith, feminism, and culture. She's author of the new book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. For centuries, many have used religious doctrine to justify their actions. And as late as the 19th century, white slave owners in the U.S. would focus on particular verses from the Bible to justify the enslavement of Black Americans. Today, Candace argues that faith leaders may be using God's gender as a way to legitimize male leadership. Ask Candace why she's pushed back against the notion of a male God and how that changed her relationship with Christianity. Language is at best failing us as we attempt to articulate God, right? Like, so if you're a person of faith and you've just had this beautiful experience or encounter with God 
and you're trying to describe it to someone or you're trying to describe who God is to you, words fail you. Like you just are like, you know, like words fail you. So we are always trying to, we are are always failing there. So part of it is true that language is something that we needed as a way to articulate, right? Um, one of the things that that my, I'll never forget one of my seminary professors said when we were talking about gender is we can acknowledge that gender, gendering God for some was the best way to articulate and describe who God was to them or is to them, but that is not the totality of who God is, right? So when you look at the ways that power throughout centuries has been wielded and how men have asserted that power, there have been ways that that power has been justified theologically because of God's gender, right? That God is a man and God is male, therefore, men lead down to what happened in 2016, that you have people who refused to vote for Hillary Clinton because of this idea, right? That a woman in leadership and that level of leadership is fundamentally against scripture and fundamentally against a theological principle, right? So, So part of it for me is, how does all of that trickle down to the ways that we recognize gender roles, the ways that we teach girls and boys, how they can only be girls or boys, right? And then when they live into that, what it looks like for them to live into being a girl or a boy, right? And God is much more expensive than that. When when you look at, if you believe that this guy created all of creation and how vast all of creation is, then what does it, what does it mean to say and acknowledge that, that there is more to God than this binary? Additionally, in the book, I talk about how for me, it was important to have my conversation about God be less common, right? That like, using pronouns for God that I use for other people, it, it cheapened for me how I talked about God and how I spoke about God. And I wanted a conversation and a description that was just reserved for God. So that really began for me um, the way that I really thought through what that looked like. I'm listening to you talk about this conversation and this evolving notion and awareness that you have and how, you know, yes, even in a space where it's seen as controversial, it's also seen as if this is about relationship building, allowing ourselves to think differently about those relationships. And you've also been very clear about the tension that some people see between God's will and free will and how the very notion of free will is unsettling to a lot of people. When you think everything is preordained and predetermined, how then can you exercise a free will? 
how do you see free will playing out in these these notions that you've talked about? Do you see it as a, a liberating force or do you see it as a, another addition to this relationship? Free will is a complication, right? Um, and I was talking about that just in the context of last week. We talk very, we can talk very beautifully <laughs> and eloquently about free will. And in the book, I talk about it's two-sided coin, right? That like free will, you can you can move and, and have agency in the world to live your best life and to flourish. And you can also do some dumb stuff and make some very dumb decisions. Like that is true, right? And that there is the reality that for for people who are Christians, you know, that this could have been, we can say, why didn't I God intervene? Why didn't I God, you know, stop, you know, 20 babies um, and two teachers, 19 babies and two teachers from being killed and so many others from being shot and that are still in the hospital and recovering from their injuries. Free will is a gift that if we do not steward well, can cause chaos, not just in our lives, but in the lives of other people. And so it's been a journey, the journey to recognize that I have a responsibility, that my actions and my behavior don't just impact me, right? And so not only should I be making decisions in regards to the world in which I want to see and in which I want to live in. But I also should be making decisions about in relationship to what I want other people to have, my loved ones, people I care about. How do, how do my decisions impact other people? And I think that there's a call and a requirement for us to often look outside of ourselves. And in that way, it becomes this force. <laughs> that that sometimes is is wielding that I've just had to sit with sometimes to be like I have the power to make a decision and as beautiful and as painful as that can be in in whatever in whatever circumstance I have the power to make a decision and sometimes that in and of itself is the only truth that's necessary Let's talk about that power to make a decision because you are very open in the book about mistakes that you have made, about challenges that you've encountered, and about the lessons that you've learned through those painful encounters. And one of them in the book, you talk about a relationship with a fellow student at Duke and all of the things that you learned about your choices, how they impact you, how they impact others, but also about the importance of grace and not just extending grace to others, but extending grace to yourself. Share with us that experience and and how that lesson of grace showing up in your life now shapes how you extend it and live your life in terms of uh, connection for other people. Yeah, like I was in a relationship that had no business being in, right? Like, I mean, he was married and I had convinced myself, as many people in those kind of circumstances do, that, you know, his experiences or his reality wasn't what it was. And even knowing it was wrong, I found ways to justify it. And I was just flat out wrong. And it took me looking in the mirror after a lot of things happened and things ended to just be very honest and say, I didn't like who I saw. And I deserved 
to be able to look at myself in the mirror and take pride in who I was, not just outwardly, but inwardly. And that there's room for me to make mistakes and recover from them if I do the work. And, you know, I, I'm one of those people and I've tried to show it and model it in my, in my personal life, how I talk about it, that like, there is nothing unavailable to us if we're willing to do the work, if we're willing to, to acknowledge our wrongs and work to make it right in whatever way reconciliation and restoration looks like. And I think that too often we work, we work to live in the shame and the guilt of our decisions because it's easier. It's easier to stay there and to be down on myself and to think all of these morose things. It's easier to feel that way. What's absolutely harder is to say, okay, that was dumb. You know better. Why, why did you do this? And what can we do to ensure that you don't do it again? And I think that all of us owe that hard work to ourselves because we're capable of being better, right? We're capable of being better. And I wake up every day with that, like, I want to, like, and sometimes it can get on people's nerves, right? Like, that you, you're like, all right, you're doing a lot today. But, like, I, I genuinely want to do better than I did before. And I'm not going to always get it right. None of us get it right. A lot of times we move out of fear, we move out of angst and anxiety around what's happening and what we what we are afraid we can't control. And we make we make some some unfortunate decisions. But again, like even even when we have to deal with the implications of our decisions, there isn't an anything that we can't come back from and be better people because of it. That's author and theologian Candace Marie Benbow. When we return, more from our conversation. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're talking with theologian Candice Marie Benbow. She's author of The Red Lip Theology, for church girls who consider tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. Since her time in seminary, Benbow has been championing womanist theory and its intersections with faith. I asked Candice to explain what womanism is and how it fits into her work. Yeah, so so womanism uh, looks at it's a, a term coined by um, Alice Walker that when you prioritize the flourishing and the thriving of Black women, society as a whole, everyone can flourish and thrive. So it, you're a womanist is a Black feminist, but it moves beyond right these like political and economic and educational leanings. It includes that. But it really focuses on what it means to holistically flourish and thrive, right? And womanism gave me language to lift that I 
am still good even when things are chaotic and they don't feel good, right? That Black women still deserve to give themselves the gift of wholeness and healing when the world says that they don't, right? And that the people that we care about and the people that we love deserve our best self. And we should always be included in that number of people that we love and people that we care about. And so it has been important to me to do work. And as I'm as I'm working on book two now, that's about love and relationships. It's been important to me to, to give Black women room the space to be human and to say like, look, you didn't get it all right. And you're not going to get it all right. But grace and mercy are available to you. And you can have and find strength for the journey to be a better person. And womanism has helped me to find ways to articulate that creatively to sisters as I do this work. You mentioned that second book. And I want to connect that work with this idea of womanism, which also means that Black women deserve pleasure and they deserve joy in all of its manifestations. And so I want to talk about something that good church girls are not supposed to talk about, Candace, and that is sex. You give the reader eight truths about sex in Red Lip Theology, and I want to read through them and then have you reflect on that. First, you say intimacy is holy. God created us for interdependence and connection. When we honor that, we thrive. Intimacy is necessary. Touch is vital. Sex is healthy, necessary, and productive for reasons beyond reproduction. Right, right? That's, that's quite the challenge. God respects our agency. Those of us who have the privilege of experiencing physical intimacy should do so as often as we deem necessary for our health, wellness, and desires. And lastly, and this is one, Candace, you know, you don't shy away from a controversy, and I love it. You say people who identify as asexual and those for whom intimacy can be difficult because of physical and emotional limitations are no less valuable or important than those who experience intimacy privilege. Why are those those key eight truths so important for you? Because we live particularly in a world that wants to compartmentalize what it means to feel, to touch, and to be. And that's essential to everything, right? Um, and too often women, Black women of faith, single Black women of faith, go without touch go without intimacy because they be- they believe that they have to deny themselves because it didn't come packaged in a man but we deserve to be loved we deserve to be touched to be desired and that does not you know make us sinful creatures like you know I talk about even in the book I say I refuse to believe and don't believe that God cares whether or not I waited until I was married as much as God wants the ethics of my relational behavior to be on the up and up and to to treat people in a way that reflects 
who I say that God is to me, right? Reflects the type of person that I that I say that I am in this world and choose to be in this world. Those are the things that matter. And I, I what I want my work always to be is a roadmap for sisters to journey themselves to their conclusions that say that it's possible for them to be happy. It's possible for them to pursue pleasure. It's possible for them to pursue joy. And so I, yeah, I'm excited because in, in this book, I'm, I'm thinking through ways of, of delving into that even more. One, because I'm just fundamentally tired of men writing about relationships and telling women what they need to do in order to be, particularly and especially Black women, what they need to do in order to be good and valuable and not giving women space to be like, you are already good. And it was a series of unfortunate events that have led to heartbreak. And there's also room for us to have some real conversations ourselves about what we need to do to ensure that we are selecting and in relationships that reflect our highest good. Like there's space for that. And I think that we need room. We need room for, for that space. And I just, I'm, I am, I'm excited that, you know, there's a time where there's very few of us who are writing and talking about this. But now there are more women and more and more people, folks who are who are talking about it and giving us many pathways to freedom and wholeness. And I I'm just really excited about what that looks like. I want to bring us back full circle back to the title of this book. And, you know, the, the second part of the title, When Sunday Morning Isn't Enough. You have spoken across numerous platforms in your written work, your work as an educator, that it's not, for some people, it's not enough to just have a religious principle or a religious relationship, that some folks need a therapist to help them work through some of those challenges, and that we shouldn't see those things as oppositional or as a test of one's faith, but that it's okay to have Jesus and a therapist if that's your faith tradition as well. When you think about that wholeness, you think about that wellness, you think about the next stages of your journey, how important is it for you and your platform to show others that it really can be compatible to build a team that is connected to your wellness? Yeah, so I talk about um, I talk about my therapist a lot in the book, um, and I talk about her a lot on my platform. But you know, my mother was a mental health nurse practitioner. She used to say that you need God and every other qualified professional to be your best self. And um, and I have a spiritual care squad in addition to um, my therapist that, you know, I talk about in the book. But I grew up in a space where mental health and, and pursuing optimal mental health was normalized for me. And so it was not a difficult decision for me, particularly after my mother passed, for me to say, I'm not good and I need help, right? And and I celebrate the growth of when my mother first died, I had sessions three days a week um, because the grief and pain was that heavy. Now I'm gone, I've gone from three days a week to once a month, right? Like that is what, and then half the time we're just looking at each other, just talking because there isn't, you know, that that is what growth does. And we've been able 
over the last six years to chart that growth. We've also been able to, over the six, last six years, chart when I done, I made a mistake and did something, I had my business done and then talk through it, right? Like, like, because it's a whole life and I'm, and I'm, and I'm a human being that's a, you know, that, that is living a whole and full life. The truth is that Sunday morning isn't enough for a lot of us. And it, and it doesn't have to, simply because it's not enough, doesn't mean that we have to live in insufficiency, right? That there are, there are spaces and there are places and there are ways that we can live into the fullness of what we need. We can get the fullness of what we need and we can bring to bear all of that to who we are. And I am, I'm really excited and grateful for the opportunity for the ways that Relic Theology has introduced a lot of women um, to, to that possibility that you don't have to continue to want and, and lack because there isn't, you don't have all that you need, but you can live into a, an agency, a free will, a holy divine call to yourself to go and get the things that you need, pull from whatever resources, um, that you need in order to to be whole and to heal and recognize that you're not alone in doing it. And I think that that's one of the things I tell people when I'm talking about relic theology and when I've done book tours and, and talked to book clubs is that there was always this belief and I'm I, that I was the only person who was thinking this way, that I was the only person that had these questions. And then you go, you know, you talk to people, you're like, oh my God, like you thought this too. And, and you, you realize that you're not alone. And, and the truth is I wasn't alone in my questions. And I'm also not alone in the ways that I have found ways to make a robust spiritual life and leaning for myself. And I want women, I want those who read Relic Theology and are encouraged to go on that path to recognize they're not alone either. You have charted this journey, this ongoing journey for your life. You have helped us see this movement from scarcity to abundance and opportunity. And so the last question I have for you, Candice, is what does joy look like for you? Oh, wow. I'm about to tear. So um, I was I was sharing with you and people who follow me on socials um, know that two days after Mother's Day, my grandmother had a stroke and she has been in the hospital since May the 10th. And um, this past weekend, she was transferred into a rehab facility. And my uncle sent me a video um, my grandmother loves this game. Her, my, her, my mother, and my uncle play this game, this computer game called Chuzzle. And I could never get into it. It would always frustrate me. But my grandmother always had the highest score in the family, and nobody ever wanted to play her. And he sent me a video of her playing Chuzzle. He brought his laptop to the rehab facility. And she's playing chuzzle and she's joking about how 
her score is low now, but when she gets home, it's gonna uh, it's gonna get higher. And I just beamed um, because even in the midst of all that her body is going through, she she leaned into what makes her come alive. And in that moment, that brought life back to me. And I think that that for me is what joy, joy continues to be. If, you know, the mundane moments and miracles that remind me that I'm still here, that remind us that we are still here, that the absolute worst thing that came wasn't the last thing. And sometimes that, sometimes that is the joy in and of itself that takes us to the next moment of joy. That was theologian and colonist Candace Marie Benbow. She's the author of Red Lip Theology for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. You can learn more about Benbo and find a link to her book at our website. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf and Katie Talarski. And you can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted. Just find us wherever you get your podcast. You can search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>